This is an ABC podcast. Hello, welcome to PM. I'm Linda Mottram. Tonight, an election campaign bombshell. Labor leader Anthony Albanese has COVID and will be sidelined for a week. Also, more recriminations over the Solomon Islands security pact with China. A military historian slams the Morrison government for sacrificing 100 years of security policy in the Pacific. We've always had two overriding aims from a security perspective in this region. Number one is to ensure that we remain the security partner of choice. And number two, to ensure that a hostile foreign power whose interests don't align with ours does not get a foothold in the region. This government has basically lost both of those elements. And players from Russia and Belarus are banned from Wimbledon. Well, it's certainly an extremely powerful measure. Um, And it certainly will have significance. I mean, everybody around the world is currently talking about this. Um, So it's a political statement and it's a firm political statement. Welcome to the program. A major hurdle for the Labor campaign tonight as leader Anthony Albanese tests positive for COVID-19. He must now isolate at home in Sydney for the next seven days, which takes him out of the face-to-face campaign fray for that time. Our campaign reporter Isabel Rowe joins me. What do we know, Isabel, about Anthony Albanese's condition? Well, Linda, he's put out a tweet to announce this news. He says he's not feeling unwell yet. The infection was apparently picked up on a routine PCR test, which he was doing on the way to heading to Western Australia. That was to be the next stop in the campaign. He was out and about today, of course, looking fine and well. He was with lots of elderly people at a retirement village in Nowra in New South Wales. He was wearing a mask uh, from all the footage that I've seen, and so were the other elderly residents around him. And I guess the big question now is how do you run for Prime Minister when you're stuck at home, notwithstanding that there's a few weeks of the campaign left? Yes, well, he says he will continue his responsibilities at home. But of course, one of the most crucial parts of a campaign is getting out and about, you know, getting that face time with voters who may not know much about you. And often those little interactions with politicians can really make or break someone's impression of you. So it'll now be a question of what Labor plans to do to fill this gap. Will it be one politician or several who take over? You would imagine that this is something that they've planned for, given the prevalence of COVID. And of course, it won't be an issue for the Prime Minister's campaign because he has already had the infection. So uh, surely Labor has been thinking about what they would do in this situation. And just remember, people are getting it two and three times, so uh, don't count your chickens. Um, Labor, the Labor leader did get a full day in before this came up. So what was on the campaign tra- trail today? Well, the government is facing relentless criticism still for failing to block a deal that could give China a major military foothold in the Pacific. It's the continuing fallout after the Solomon Islands signed this secret security deal with Beijing, a move that military historians are saying sacrificed a century of Australian foreign policy goals in the region. Today, the Prime Minister has declined to answer some questions on that issue, citing national security. 
And a key Solomon Islands politician is defending the decision not to disclose the terms of the agreement. There were also domestic considerations on the campaign trail today. Scott Morrison ended up apologising for a remark that he made last night uh, in the TV debate after a public rebuke from the Australian of the Year, Dylan Alcott. And as I said earlier, they both spent some time today in aged care centres. Really nice to meet you. It is nice to see you. But I hope everything goes well for you. Oh, thank you. Very kind of you. Could you please tell me what the unemployment rate is in Australia? 4%. I'm going to vote. Thank you. (laughs) Labor has made aged care reform, more nurses and better pay for staff, one of its central election policies. But it was another matter that bothered pensioners meeting the Prime Minister in the Liberal-held seat of Longman. A number of retirees we spoke to at that retirement village in Caboolture said, quote, they're worried about the pension card. It's clear your message that this is just a Labor lie is not cutting through. What can you do now? Labor are telling a despicable lie to pensioners seeking to frighten them to vote for the Labor Party. Labor insists it won't stop making the claim that the Liberal government would put pensioners onto the cashless debit card. Opposition finance spokeswoman Katie Gallagher spoke to Sky News. We are only taking the government with the language that they have used about it becoming a universal platform. They say it won't extend to pensioners, though. That won't extend. Yeah, well, they say that. They say a whole range of things, Pete, um, but, you know, then change their mind down the track. Something the Prime Minister said during last night's TV debate has been attracting criticism. A woman with a child with autism asked the Prime Minister about funding for the National Disability Insurance Scheme. In response, he said this. Jenny and I have been blessed. We've got two children that don't, haven't had to go through that. And so for parents with children who are disabled, I can only try and understand. As a mother of a child with autism, Katie Gallagher says she was offended. I thought the Prime Minister's comments were insensitive and offending to those of us who have our lives enriched by children with autism and and with other disabilities. Liberal Senator Holly Hughes also has a child with autism, but sees it differently. You know, to focus on one word is missing the point. It's not looking at us as families or our children as a burden. It's a recognition that we do have additional challenges. Scott Morrison was also reprimanded in a social media post by Australian of the Year Dylan Alcott, who says feeling sorry for people with a disability doesn't help. Mr Morrison was apologetic. I meant no offence by what I said last night, but I accept that it has caused offence to people and, and, and Dylan and I have been in contact today and I apologise directly to Dylan about that. The opposition also continues to hammer the government over the Solomon Islands security deal, insisting it leaves Australia open to Chinese military based nearby. Anthony Albanese wants the government to take it more seriously. The United States is sending Kurt Campbell, its senior representative in this region. We sent a junior person. Scott Morrison brushed away questions today about when he was aware of the details of the agreement. 
Uh, I'm not going to go into those specifics because it goes into issues of national security. So I'm, I'm not going to do that. What I'm, no, no, what I'm telling you, no, no, I'm, I'm sorry, I know a bit about national security. I've been on the National Security Committee for eight years. It seems former Solomon Islands Prime Minister Danny Phillip also believes that some matters are too top secret for the public. He's defended the deal with China in an online university seminar today, saying it's like the secretive Pine Gap base in the Northern Territory. In, in matters of national security, there are some things that do not need to be to have the whole country's legitimacy uh, in terms of national security, such as, you know, there are people in Australia who know very little about Pine Gap um, in the middle of the desert, uh, the military base of the uh, United States. Defence Minister Peter Dutton believes China won't hesitate in bolstering its presence in the South Pacific. Isabel Rowe with that report. Well, aged care was an issue during the first leaders debate last night with Labor proposing 24-7 nurses in every aged care home. But the coalition saying that'll force some facilities to close. Aged care workers will strike before the election over chronic staff shortages and conditions in the sector. And there's more evidence of the enormity of the issues in the sector emerging today. In Port Augusta, in regional South Australia, the main aged care home has failed every single quality standard, a resident suffered a disfiguring pressure sore, and staff reported shortages of basic supplies. Families there are demanding more staff and better public scrutiny of how providers spend their funding. This report from ABC Regional Investigations, Andy Burns and Charlotte King, and a warning that it does include some disturbing details. She drops one and brings back three. It's a weekday morning in Port Augusta, and a group of retired women are playing cards at the Senior Citizen Centre. They all have an opinion on the nearby nursing home. Yeah. No, yeah, nobody wants to go if there. If we ever get to that stage, you know, I don't want to go in there fucking help it. Not at the moment. No. Like is. The town's main aged care provider, Edenfield Family Care, is a for-profit company that runs two nursing homes here, Ramsey and Narilda. The Ramsey site has failed on every quality and safety measure from the aged care watchdog, in part because of how the home treated Trish Wise's father, Eric. His physical state deteriorated to a point where he almost died. Less than eight weeks after he entered the home last year, Eric left in an ambulance, permanently disfigured. The 80-year-old requires staff to rotate him every two hours to avoid bed sores. Trish Wise says there weren't enough workers to cater to his needs. Through not being rotated adequately, the pressure sore grew and grew to an extent that it was a large wound where flesh was eaten away. The cavity went so deep that his spine was showing through the wound. Eric Wise spent the next six months in hospital. The Aged Care Quality and Safety Commission sanctioned the home after it found staff did not have the skills to perform their job and that the home had no framework to prevent abuse and neglect. Staff told the Commission they often ran out of basic supplies like gloves and hand soap and that there weren't enough workers to provide meals or to take residents to the toilet. And then over time, you become incontinent yourself. Cheryl Dawson's mother, Jean, also lives at Ramsey. She says her mother was told she was costing the home through her use of incontinence pads. The next day, she was shaking all over. That's when she told me she'd rather be 
out with my dad out of the cemetery. No one from Edenfield Family Care was available for an interview, but the home released a statement confirming it was working with the quality agency to address shortcomings. It says it was surprised and devastated by the findings and it's hired an external advisor to audit systems and provide additional staff training. It also says it's made significant progress since the November report, including changes in management and employing additional staff. The men vying to become the next Prime Minister were asked about aged care at last night's leaders' debate. Labor leader Anthony Albanese has promised to put nurses in homes 24-7, a recommendation from the Royal Commission. I think most people would be surprised that there aren't nurses in nursing homes now. Prime Minister Scott Morrison told the audience that was unrealistic. If you make that the standard, then you will be closing aged care facilities in rural and regional communities Grace Stokes's grandmother, Amelia, also lives in the Port Augusta home. This story affects residents in aged care homes across Australia and, it, and it's really the canary in the coal mine here. She says it's the aged care system as a whole, not the staff, that are to blame for its failings. I hold the federal government accountable for the failings in the home. Port Augusta's federal member is Liberal Whip Rowan Ramsey. You cannot micromanage every nook and cranny of every organisation. No. I'm, I'm a farmer and we work very hard to look after our lives. Livestock. But can I guarantee that everybody that deals in that handling system is dealing with that, life, that that animal in the way that I would deal with them? Well, of course I can't. The aged care minister, Richard Colbeck, said in a statement that he'd been updated on the concerning situation in Port Augusta and had strengthened the regulator's oversight capacity. The Aged Care Quality and Safety Commission says it's monitoring compliance at Edenfield. It's not been back for a site visit since November. Cheryl Dawson says aged care residents deserve a more caring approach. They have given up everything to be going in there and expect to be looked after at least half decently. Cheryl Dawson, whose mother lives at the Ramsey Aged Care Home, reporting there by Charlotte King and Andy Burns. Well, let's go back to the furor over the Solomon Islands security agreement with China. And as Isabel Rowe reported, Solomon's MP and former Prime Minister Danny Phillip today defended the secrecy around the pact by claiming it's akin to the secrecy around Pine Gap, the joint US-Australian intelligence base near Alice Springs. I put that proposition to Professor Peter Dean, who's a military historian and chair of defence studies at the University of WA. Well, of course, Solomon Islands, like Australia, is a democracy. And in democracy, we have much more transparency about any of our foreign arrangements that we have, particularly security arrangements with other countries. So, yes, all, all elements of sort of security type treaties have elements that are secret. But if you look, for instance, at the Pine Gap situation, Australia has what's known as full knowledge and concurrency. That means that we have all knowledge of what happens in that facility, that we have an Australian deputy or an Australian in charge. And of course, that's a joint facility. It's not a US base. It's a joint facility that we partnered with the United States. And of course, that's been openly debated in our parliament. It's been discussed in our media. And of course, the other thing is that we know through both um, election after election and poll after poll that Australia's strategic alliance with the United States enjoys stratospheric public support. So the question for the Solomon Islands was how much transparency is around this and how much public support is for this deal with China. Danny Phillip also suggested um, <coughs> that the agreement is substantially the same, the one that has been signed now, as the text of the deal that was leaked last week. So what then does that tell us? about China's intentions in Solomon Islands, how would you characterise it? Uh, of course, they're using this sort of argument or this rationale 
about um, protecting their, their interests. From the Chinese, of course, they're an external power. They're not part of the Pacific family. The great irony here is China is constantly telling Australia and other Western countries to stay out of the affairs of East Asia. Well, of course, China's not a member of the South Pacific family. It's certainly an external power. It is a very, very long way away from China. But what we can see, what they're trying to do here is to try and shape the region in their own interests, to protect their own interests, and of course to extend Chinese influence in the region. One of the big first moves in this, of course, was China to move Solomon Islands away from supporting um, Taiwan in the United Nations to supporting China, and now further extending into um, being able to shape the region, not just the Solomon Islands, about their influence, their presence, their naval presence, their military involvement in the region. And of course, you know, as we know, China is an authoritarian state that doesn't share the same interests as other countries in the Pacific. They're also rightly very concerned by this. Mm. The Australian government has has defended its uh, prior knowledge of this deal, uh, its, its handling of relations with Solomon Islands and with the Pacific more generally, with its Pacific step up. What's your analysis of the government's, you know, vulnerability here, I guess, in terms of, you know, letting China into our backyard? Well, I have to say the government has dropped the ball massively on this. There's no other way to read it. I know the Defence Minister, you know, Peter Dutton, tried to defend today that this is not what the intelligence was giving them. When there's reports that, you know, the opposition leader of the Solomon Islands walked into the Australian High Commission last August to provide intelligence that, that this was a concern and this was happening. We know the government has struggled to engage our Pacific community and our Pacific family on their own terms. It has a very poor record of engagement with issues such as climate change and other security issues that are actually of interest to our Pacific Islands, Asians and friends. So we've got a real issue with a, with a lot of talk and a lot of rhetoric from the government, but actually quite a poor performance and track record, both over the longer term, um, you know, the loss of Australian soft power and influence in the region, but also specifically in the short term. And what's really concerning here is that Australia's run a, a pretty consistent line in, it, in its strategy and foreign policy in this region for well over 100 years. The South Pacific is our most important region close to Australia. We've always had two overriding aims from a security perspective in this region. Number one is to ensure that we remain the security partner of choice in the region. And number two, to ensure that a hostile foreign power whose interests don't align with ours does not get a foothold in the region. Now, this government has basically lost both of those elements over both the short term and the long term. So this is a massive own goal. It's undermined you know, nearly 100 years of Australia's strategic approach to the region. And, and to be honest, uh, I, I know Penny Wong called this one of the greatest disasters in the Pacific for Australian foreign policy since the Second World War. And, and I have to say, she's probably not wrong on this. And then we saw extraordinarily scenes in the debate last night where the Prime Minister tried to accuse the opposition leader. And of course, anyone who was critical of the government's approach on this of signing with a foreign power. I mean, these are some really extraordinary comments. Yes, the Solomon Islands is an independent sovereign country and they have a right to sign agreements with whomever they want. However, we are right to be critical of the failures of Australian policy in this region. And this most recent event in the South Pacific is one of the biggest we've had in a very long time. Peter Dean, good to talk to you. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. My pleasure. Peter Dean is Chair of Defence Studies at the University of WA. You're listening to PM on the radio on the ABC Listen app and via the podcast. I'm Linda Mottram. Ahead, Russia tests an intercontinental ballistic missile as it intensifies its war in the east of Ukraine.
Well, at the Ben Robert Smith defamation trial, a former comrade of the decorated soldier has angrily denied his lying to the court to lessen the risk that he'll be charged with war crimes. The witness, known as Person 5, has told the court Mr Robert Smith's employer, the Seven Network, is paying his legal fees. Ben Robert Smith is suing three newspapers after they published allegations he'd committed war crimes in Afghanistan, is a bully and has engaged in domestic violence, allegations he strongly denies. Samantha Donovan is following the case. Well, Linda, Person 5 was Ben Robert Smith's patrol commander back in Afghanistan in 2009. Mr Robert Smith was the second in charge of that patrol. Uh, Person 5 has told the court they're still good friends. He's given evidence today he understands that the two of them are being investigated for the alleged illegal killings of five Afghans, allegations they both strongly deny. Now, one of the allegations that the newspapers have published is that in April 2009, at a compound in Afghanistan called Whiskey 108. Person 5 ordered a rookie soldier to kill an unarmed Afghan man who'd been taken into custody and that it was Ben Robert Smith who directed that junior soldier to kill the man. We know from Person 5's evidence that he's been interviewed about the allegations by the Inspector General of the Australian Defence Force, which is looking into the actions of the Australian forces in Afghanistan. The senior counsel for the newspapers, Nicholas Owens uh, put to Person 5 this afternoon that he's giving evidence in support of Ben Robert Smith and, in fact, lying to the court about what happened at Whiskey 108 because if Mr Robert Smith loses this defamation case, so if the newspapers succeed in convincing the court their allegations are true, it's more likely that both he and Mr Robert Smith will be charged with war crimes. Now, Person 5 strongly denied this. He denied, too, that he's giving false evidence uh, because if Mr Robert Smith loses the case, his reputation and business interests will be affected. Nicholas Owens for the newspapers put to him, quote, you're giving evidence for Ben Robert Smith to make sure he doesn't turn against you. No, that's not true, Person 5 told the court. He's also denied, Linda, that he contacted Ben Robert Smith after he'd been interviewed by the Brereton Inquiry to tip him off about some of the allegations against them. Uh, contact of that sort is a criminal offence. Person 5 gave evidence he just told Mr Robert Smith the inquiry was a witch hunt. Samantha Donovan, our reporter there. Well, Russia is on the verge of taking the strategic port city of Mariupol in Ukraine after a siege that has lasted weeks. Though another Russian-imposed deadline for surrender has passed, Ukrainians in the city continue to defend their homes. Russia has also test-launched an intercontinental ballistic missile. President Putin warns it should make its enemies think twice. Sarah Sedgi reports. Alexandra Kuspinova managed to escape fighting in the east of Ukraine a few days ago with her family. At 11 o'clock at night it started shelling. My granddaughter was losing consciousness so we ran. We had shelling from all sides around us and my granddaughter started fainting. We didn't sleep the whole night. Then we grabbed what we could and took the cat. That's all. The 61-year-old is safe for now but knows so many in her home country aren't. In the morning, I wake up and pray. In the evening, I go to bed and pray that everything will be fine. So many children have died. So many people have died. What for? What's all that for? It's horrifying, simply horrifying. Why is this war needed? 
Days ago, Russia launched a ground offensive in Ukraine's east. And in the city of Mariupol to the southeast, there are fears Ukrainian fighters can't hold out much longer. They are outnumbered and more than 100,000 civilians are trapped. Some people have managed to get out through humanitarian corridors, but others who've tried are unaccounted for. Ukraine's president is Volodymyr Zelensky. Thousands of civilians in Mariupol have been evacuated thanks to this work. I have to admit that several thousands of people have believed Russian occupiers and moved towards the occupied territories of our country. I have to admit this tragedy that we don't know the fate of these thousands of civilians. Despite Ukraine's troops being outnumbered 10 to 1 in Mariupol, they refuse to give in. Russia's deadline for them to surrender has now passed. The resistance speaks volumes to an extraordinary resolve of the Ukrainian people to push back and fight back. John Blacksland is a professor of international security and intelligence studies at Australian National University. The resolve is heartfelt, deep set and reinforced by the incredible Uh, violence that Putin's forces have inflicted on Ukraine already. We saw in Bucha and places like that, civilians with their hands tied behind their backs shot point-blank range in the head. This demonstrates to the people of Mariupol that the prospect of surrender, this idea that you could surrender nobly to the Russians and it would be okay, is an illusion that they did not fall for. Russia's President Vladimir Putin says a nuclear-capable intercontinental ballistic missile has been test-launched and is using the occasion to send a warning. This truly unique weapon will strengthen the combat potential of our armed forces, reliably ensure Russia's security from external threats and provide food for thought for those who, in the heat of frenzied aggressive rhetoric, try to threaten our country. The US doesn't deem the launch to be a threat. Professor Blacksland says its timing does reveal a lot. You know, Russia has been investing in advancing its intercontinental ballistic missile technology for some time now. So the fact that it is testing its ability is not all that surprising. The timing does seem to be more than coincidental, reflecting a deep frustration for Vladimir Putin at the inability to break through Ukraine and win a decisive victory. But also, and perhaps more importantly, it reflects a deep frustration at the extent to which the United States has been able to muster resolve of NATO and other countries to support Ukraine. Ukraine is seeking urgent negotiations with Russia in Mariupol to save those who remain there. Sarah Sedgi with that report. Well, the fallout from Russia's war in Ukraine is being felt in the sporting world with one of the most prestigious tennis competitions, Wimbledon, banning players from Russia and Belarus. It means some of the world's top-ranking champions won't be welcome on court at this year's tournament, but it's also split the tennis world. Emily Burke reports. The decision by the All England Club is the first time a tennis tournament has told players from Russia and Belarus that they're not welcome, sidelining some of the world's top talent. In a statement, the club said in the circumstances of such unjustified and unprecedented military aggression, it would be unacceptable for the Russian regime to derive any benefits from the involvement of Russian or Belarusian players with the championships. Tennis Channel commentator Nick Munro. And you have- 
have Sabalenka, Rublev, Kachanov, Medvedev, Azarenka, so many top players, and it's just tough. It's unfair, and they just want to play the sport they love, and, and it's tough. Hopefully, uh, Wimbledon will, will reverse the decision. Marta Kostyuk is a Ukrainian tennis pro who's been urging athletes to take a public stand against the war. I think this was an important decision to make by Wimbledon. This is not a good excuse enough to say like, oh, we we are like we don't decide anything. We have no influence or whatsoever. The ATP and the Women's Tennis Association have described the decision as unfair, with the potential to set a damaging precedent for the game. The ATP has also said that discrimination based on nationality also constitutes a violation of an agreement that player entry is based solely on ATP rankings. Moscow has slammed the decision. A Kremlin spokesman said to make sports people hostages of political intrigue is unacceptable. It's unclear if the upcoming French and US Grand Slam tournaments will follow suit. Well, it's certainly an extremely powerful measure and it certainly will have significance. I mean, everybody around the world is currently talking about this. So it's a political statement and it's a firm political statement. Dr Sam Duncan is from Swinburne University's Sport Innovation Research Group. There aren't any other organisations currently putting up their hand going as far as Wimbledon. Um, In saying that, sometimes it only takes one significant um, sporting organisation for the dominoes to fall. So it's certainly a watch this space. How useful and how powerful are sanctions like this? Sport and politics mix. All of those people that argue that sport and politics should be separate are ignoring history. We have seen numerous boycotts from countries when it comes to international events such as the Olympics. Have a look at 1980's boycott list when the Olympics were in Moscow and again in 1984 relating to the Cold War. Um, uh, Also look at the way in which politicians have leveraged sport to mend bridges or, or to make important statements. Trust me, the All England Lawn Tennis Club would be under no illusions about how this was going to be received. Could it backfire? I mean, it's such a prestigious event. You know, it's hard to see too many athletes putting their hand up to say they're standing with Russian tennis players and they're choosing not to play. Dr Sam Duncan from Swinburne University speaking with our reporter Emily Burke. Well, that's PM for this Thursday. Thank you for listening. Sabra Lane is here with AM in the morning, and I do hope you can join Samantha Donovan for more PM tomorrow evening. Have a good night. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.